0: Well, again, the series we are starting is called, uh, we are in, in the middle of, it's called Finding Joy. It's through the book of, uh, it's a study through the book of Philippians where Paul is writing to the first church that was established on the continent of Europe, which is kind of a cool deal. And he has a lot to say in this letter, but a big theme throughout the whole thing is there is joy to be found in all occasions, at all times in life. Even the hardest of times, there is joy to be found. Um, and the first part of the letter, which we've been looking at the last few weeks, uh, he's been basically saying, look, this is what God has done for you. This is why you can be filled with joy. And then now we're kind of turning into the, the latter part of the letter where Paul says, and now here's our response based on what God's done and that there's joy in the response. And what we see him doing today is kind of taking a, a, a wide-angle lens approach to the matter of, of following Jesus. He looks now at the matter of what it, what it means to, to, follow, to be a person of the Christian faith, how we, are ought, how we ought to live. Now, if you are here today and you don't identify as Christian, uh, I hope today, as we, we consider the thought of what it looks like to, to live the, the Christian life, I hope today is a, is a bit of a surprise to you. I hope today uh, breaks down some barriers to what you th- perhaps think or have thought uh, the Christian life is meant to be um, versus what it actually is meant to be. And then if you are a Christian here today, uh, I hope uh, today you don't just see uh, how you are, we are meant to live as, as, as women and men of faith, but how we're, supposed to, how, how we're to find joy in that. Uh, how do we find joy? How, do, how is the, the Christian life meant to, to be lived? Paul gets right into it with this first thought. He says, you must work out your salvation. We've got to work out our salvation, which is such an interesting phrase, is it not? What what in the world does that mean? Work out your salvation. Uh, let's consider for a second what the word salvation means. Okay, very high level. We'll unpack this later as we go, as we as we get uh, move on. But at the very high level, salvation is what we receive from God—a restored relationship in Him because of what Jesus has done for us. Okay, it's something uh, that we receive by faith. What He did on the cross, dying. For the sins of the world and any, everybody who receives that by faith it receives salvation, restored relationship with God, eternal life in his name. And so what we know working out our salvation is not, is not the phrase, I guess we could say, working for your salvation. Paul is not here saying you've got to work for, you've got to earn your salvation. That you know what? It's kind of up for grabs, your relationship with God. He did a little bit back here and you better do your part. You better live a good life to earn it, or there's things that you could do to unearn it. Uh, There's things that you could do to lose it. He's not saying that. That would go in the face of everything that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and what he's done for us on the cross is all about. So he doesn't say you have to work for your salvation. He's saying you have to work out your salvation. He's saying the Christian faith has to become operational. The Christian faith, has to be moved to action. I had a buddy in college, back at, at Cal, um, who was obsessed with all things Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, you know the bodybuilder, the, the actor. Um, he, he was a bodybuilder, well not really bodybuilder. He pr- he'd like to think of himself as a bodybuilder. He was an athlete, so he's, he went to the gym a lot. And he had the best Arnold impression out there, okay? And I, I'll never forget that one time. Uh, I'll never forget the Bible study that he led uh, on this exact text. Um, I've been a part of a lot of Bible studies in my day. I've led a lot of Bible studies in my day. I've got, you know, discussions on the Bible and just kind of spiritual conversations. I've been a part of. It. I've led a lot. I remember hardly any of them. I mean, there's there's a number I remember. Okay, especially at current. I remember you. Yeah. <laughs> I remember this Bible study because he got to the part where it's like you, you work out your salvation. And he, uh, he just, in the best Arnold, he's like, yeah, we gotta work out our salvation. And he's like, you know, first get to the chapa, then we gotta work out, your, uh, sorry, okay. That's, he did way better, he did way better than that. I was just like, so we were all college dudes, like that was hilarious. Like that, was, that made our, our, our night. But it, and he didn't really develop the thought, but that's, that, that, that analogy really stuck with me. That, that analogy really stuck with me. Working out our salvation, you know, it's like muscles, if we don't, if they're left unused, they atrophy. Um, ideally, they're developed, right? The the athlete, she goes to the gym to work on endurance, to build up her strength, so that when she's out on the field, she can have a bigger impact for her team. She can push the ball down the field. Cons- you know, contrast that with the couch potato, right? The, we are to work out our salvation. Verse Because it is entrusted to us. the the, 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 The faith that God gives us is a gift. It's meant to be lived out. Verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, there's a ton going on in that verse. We don't have enough time to unpack it all. But high level, there's a thought here that comes up that has been with the Bible from the very, very beginning. When God first called his people, I mean, we're talking, you know, the very first couple of pages in the Bible. Genesis 12, which is there in my Bible, okay, uh, when he called Abraham, the, the patriarch, of God's people the the person that that, he, that God said the promise I will be your God you will be my people He said to them he said to him I'm gonna bless you I'm gonna take I'm gonna bless you but that's only half of the promise that he gave to Abraham The other half of the promise was, I'm gonna bless you so that you are a blessing I'm, I'm gonna bless you but the purpose is not just that you would be blessed it's that you bless others That's how it started, that's how it works out throughout the entire Bible, all the way to the point of where we are today, and through the rest of it. God always blesses us, he entrusts us with something that we are meant to work out, that we are meant to live out for the sake of others. Now what does this mean practically, what does this look like? So if you're here with us last week, we were looking at the uh, we were considering the first part of Philippians chapter 2 and we 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 talked about how God desires for us something that we all desire whether we realize it or not. God desires for us to have harmonious, unified human community. Thriving, life-giving relationships relationships especially considering all that you read in the news and all the the strife out there all the divisions all that sort of stuff is god wants us to have life-giving thriving relationships and paul says to, said to the church church you guys got to lead out in this if god has done all of this for you you got to lead out in this you got to lead the charge ah but he says you want to know the key ingredient to getting to these unified relationships that that whether you know it or not you really really do need the key ingredient to getting there is humility. There's the rub. Humility is this interesting virtue, right? As a culture, I think on paper, we like the idea of humility. That's good. It's a good, it's a good quality of somebody. But I think in practice, the reality is we don't especially esteem that among the virtues, do we? I mean, let alone in the Silicon Valley, I mean, it, we're, we're more often than not puffing out our chests trying to get what's ours first let alone living in humility, as Paul says, put, casting aside our own interests for the sake of others, putting other needs, uh, others' needs ahead of our own. So here we are left, this is last week's message, we're, we're left with this thought that's very central to the Christian faith. We are called to live for humility. We're supposed to live humbly for others. This is a blessing that we've been given, this, this truth, this biblical truth that we can see, and we realize, yeah, you know, If all we do with a message like last week or a text like last week is say, you know what, humility, check, that seems good. I agree. Intellectually, good. But if it remains in the land of good intentions, it is not working out our salvation. It's not working out our faith. Working out our faith with humility, for instance, is is wrestling with it. It's saying something like, man, God, I, I really struggle with this humility bit. And remember how we talked about it last week? Humility is one of those things where we just feel like, the, you know, the minute we start to think, hey, I got this down is the minute, oh, boy, we're in trouble. You know, we're really actually struggling with it all the more. Yellow flag should go up. And so working on our salvation in that instance is saying, you know what, God, oh, my goodness. I, actually, I, I see that humility is so important to the thriving relationships. You're not only want for me, but for those around me. And yet I don't even see where I'm struggling in this area. Would you, Lord, Have mercy. Help me to see how I'm struggling in this area, how I'm missing this, in the workplace. You know, in in my church community. I don't know. In my marriage. That's working it through. That's saying, you know what, God, you've given me. You know, the 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 Christian faith doesn't just let me just say, you know, that's that's nice, good thought. It, it, It calls us to work it out. To you know, hit the. You know what I mean? Work out our salvation. Um. It's also interesting too that he says now, as you know, as uh, you know, as he, he does this little bit of saying like, you know, as you've, you know, when I was always around, you guys did pretty well at this. Now, all the more while I'm not here, is verse twelve, verse thirteen, you guys got to really work on this. Work out your faith. He said you got to keep yourself accountable. You got to, you got to work on this. this. is something you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work on. For it is God who works in you to will and to act. A posture. A gospel posture, one that sees salvation of what God has done for us, not anything we have done, is a posture that says, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Make me more like your son. Would you work in me? It's a posture. Faith must translate into action. And then Paul moves on in this very next verse to to kind of go from the wide-angle lens to really narrow his focus. He's still talking high level of what we are ought to what what the Christian how the Christian ought to live. And he's kind of talking about working out the salvation. That, that can be a, a lot of truths, that can be to play out in a lot of arenas. But then he kind of really kind of uh, narrows the focus and he says, Okay, but here's one area. Boy, guys, church, listen up. If you can get this, it's a game changer. In your faith, in terms of your own. Health, spiritual health, and in terms of like being a blessing for you, but also being a blessing to others. If you can get this, it's a game changer. Here's what he says, verse fourteen: Do everything without grumbling and arguing. That's a hard one. You know, let me start with, with my crosshairs on the church. Okay, um, I remember listening to a message uh, given by a pastor back again when I was in college. And uh, he was talking about how he looked into it or he heard that uh, U.S. senators receive a lot of mail, as I'm sure we can all imagine. And he was saying, he's like, yeah, it's actually really sad. The vast majority of letters that they receive in the mail are from Christians complaining. Now, let me ask you, does that surprise you without pointing any fingers? And he was talking about, it wasn't, you know, a sermon on this text or whatever, but he, he was talking about how, like, how tragic is that? If, if the Christian faith, if the salvation means it should posture our hearts in humility, posture ourselves to love and to serve and to care for others. By the way, even when we don't see eye to eye, U.S. senators sh- should be re- still receiving the most letters from Christians, but they should be letters of encouragement. And, love. and by the way, that doesn't mean you have to see eye-to-eye eye with the person and, you know, but just in some way, support. You know, there's texts that say, you know, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2, it says, pray for everybody in authority. It, doesn't, it has no mention on political affiliation they're in. Just, just love them. Uh, support them. Uh, we are such complainers. We are such crumblers, are we not, as a society? Do not, do not read the comment section of a news article. I uh, I don't know why I do this I really got to stop but I read those things and I actually do it intentionally I read it because I want to kind of get a pulse of the unfiltered like drudges of human like this is and you know it's not all just it's not all trolls out there I mean you, you read some of these reputable like uh, a web uh, you know news agencies and there's there's some really thoughtful you know um, uh, you know thoughtful responses um, but boy it, it Ah, hold a gun to my head, it's so hard to read, it's so depressing, and it sucks you into a vortex because we're such complainers, we're such grumblers. Um, and that's not to say, by the way, we, don't need, we need healthy debate, we know that, but there's, there's a difference, right, when it comes to grumbling? Um, and then, okay, crosshairs on me. Um, boy, I am a complainer, I'm a grumbler. I used to, uh, re- you guys remember when Yelp first came out? Uh, you know, this user review site? I told myself, hey, I'm gonna contribute. I'm not going to just take from that. I'm going to be a contributor here. But I told myself when when that thing came out, I was like, okay, uh, for every negative response, like, review that I'm going to leave, I'm going to try to first review a few positive responses, and then I can do a negative one. You know what ended up happening? I never reviewed a single Yelp thing. Because I'd go, and I'd have a negative response, and I'd get back seething in front of my computer like, oh, this dude didn't give me my water. Down with you, Cheesecake Factory, you know, or whatever. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, I'm gonna let you know, and um, and then I couldn't hit send because I was like, oh, I haven't done a positive one. Oh, no positive comes to mind. Okay, I'll just hold, save this one. And by the way, it's not that I didn't have positive experiences. I'd have great positive experiences, restaurants or whatever. But by the time I got home and in front of my computer, I had no desire any longer to write a review. It wasn't as important to me anymore. What does that tell me about myself? Are we not complainers? Okay, I'll, I'm speaking to myself here. Everybody else is like, David, you got issues? <laughs> um, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Paul says, if you want to stand out, this is how you do it. Um, you know, that that word there, isn't it an interesting word, grumbling? That's not a word we use a lot in the English language, right? I mean, do you, do you use that word? Hey, stop grumbling, you know, you grumbler. Um, it's not a word we use. It's not a word especially used in... The Bible, by the way. But there's one key, key place where the word grumbling is used very frequently in the Bible. The Israelites, when they were wandering in the desert, they were grumbling. And we know... uh, I can't, you can't help but read this text in terms of, if, if you know, if, if, you've, if you've read the Bible and you, you kind of know the kind of the background here, which the Philippians probably would have known, that Paul was without doubt referring to the Israelites grumbling because he then he not only uses this word, which is like, oh, boy, that word, where do we see that word? It's, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious. Um, if you know the context. But then he goes on, he says, so that you, you, know, the children, so that you may become uh, children of God without fault in a, in a warped and crooked generation. And he's quoting there, if you have your Bibles out, he's quoting a passage from the Hebrew Scriptures, Deuteronomy 32, which all that is to say is that that's the exact time frame when Deuteronomy was written, that book that, he's, that Paul's quoting here, is the exact same time frame of the grumblers, Israelites, in the desert. Here's what I believe this means. Paul is saying, learn from the grumbling of the Israelites. The Israelites, their story, real briefly, won't go into all of it, is the Exodus. You guys know, you've probably seen the movie or whatever. God delivered them out of uh, bondage, out of slavery, out of Egypt. and You know the parting of the Red Sea? You know the you know the, the whole deal? The miracle after miracle that, that God did through Moses to deliver them from the hands of Pharaoh out in the desert providing for them food when there's just no food out there, water, um, and what were the Israelites doing over and over and over again on every single page of the Exodus story? They were grumbling. All the time. I used to read the story and say, these guys are idiots. I remember reading the Bible from cover to cover the first time when I was uh, you know, when I was younger. And that was my thought. I was like, these guys are idiots. I mean, I get, I get that being out in the desert is hard. You know, that's not fun, hot, uncomfortable, you know, it's nice to have running supply of water and all that sort of thing. I get that. But at the same time, when you read these stories in Exodus over and over again, you see one story after another on every single page, often multiple times on the same page, God clearly showing up and providing for them, loving for them in miraculous ways. I used to think, you guys are idiots. Don't you see? God is helping you so clearly. I get that it's hard, but come on, suck it up. I used to think that until I lived a little bit of life. And I realized, oh my goodness, if they're idiots, I'm an idiot. I am like, boy, God will do something amazing in my life that is just beyond, you know, I know I can sound over-spiritual here, but I'm just saying, there's just things in my life I'm just like, my goodness, God has just shown up in this way and this way. And then I get to the next situation where it's like, oh, God, how's this going to work out? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And then God shows up. I've, had, I've now had a track record of that, and what am I going to do next time? Probably grumble, if the pattern continues. Hopefully not. Paul is saying, learn from those guys, learn. You know, it's, it's so fascinating to me when you look at kind of the perspective shift that happens for the Israelites when they were grumbling back here in Exodus thousands of years before even Paul wrote. You know, there's they grumble, grumble, grumble. But once you start moving through the Bible, hundreds of years, thousands of years, all throughout, when, whenever writers of the Bible look back on that time, of when they're out in the desert, when they were grumbling, the perspective shifts when the kings, the prophets, they write, and they hundreds of years later look back on what that time amounted to, all that grumbling, all that, you know what the perspective shifts to? Boy, weren't, weren't, there, weren't those the best of times? Like What? They were grumbling, but now it's like, it was the best of times? Yeah, it was the best of times. Why? Because those are the times when we were so intimately in the, uh, under the wings of God taking care of us. Was it hard? Yeah, it was hard, but wasn't it cool that we got to experience so clearly our dependence on God, which, by the way, we always have, but sometimes we just fake ourselves into thinking it otherwise. We got to see that. You know, we got to, you know, the days of the tabernacle, the portable church, when they were wandering the desert, they were setting up tents every, every time they pick up and go, often once a week, sometimes more than that. They'd set up tents, and I'm, I was talking to the team earlier today. The guys come here and set up and, and tear down. And I was just like, we have tents, you know, the the, the pipe and drape and all that sort of thing. And, and yet, it's like they were they would look back on those times and be like, my goodness, those were the times we just so intimately saw God's presence with us because we realized it's not about him being in a building. It's about him being where we are and us relying on him. Isn't that great? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Whoa. Classic modern day example parents of newborns. See where I'm going with this one? Parents of newborns, it's like, man, life's hard. Life is so hard. You know, all the lack of sleep, all the, like, mountains of poo diapers and all that sort of thing. Sorry, I just, yeah, went there. It's like, oh, and what does every parent, however, you know, what does every parent, though, of uh, a kid who's grown up and left the house say to the newborn parent, though? They always say, Boy, aren't those the best times? <laughs> Cherish those times. And what does every person, every newborn parent, like think in response to that person? Oh, you gotta be kidding me! You know. And then these guys, their kids grow up. They they grow up. they you know, and then their kids leave the house, and then they find a newborn parent, and then they're saying, "Oh, aren't those the best times?" What's the deal with that? I mean, we we know. I mean, it's like for, you know, it's like having a newborn. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but there's something intimately special and good about that time and all that sort of thing. Um, Paul is saying, learn from these guys, learn from their example. It seems to me, if you flip the grumbling, the arguing, the complaining is another way that, that text can be translated, on its head, it's developing a heart of gratitude, is it not? It's seeing in every moment, yeah, sometimes things are really, really hard, but God is always, always good. And he's always, always taking care of us. And he's always thinking about you, loving you, even in the hardest of times. Extreme example, okay? Extreme example. But this is too powerful and too fresh not to think about. Last week, we're all familiar. uh, Probably during our time of worship in Texas, there was that shooting at a church in in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Um, I don't have this in my notes, but something like, I don't know, like 25 folks um, were killed, something to that effect. One family, grandparents, lost nine family members. Kids, grandkids, one in utero. Just devastating, to say the least. And then they came out and they said, in a Washington Post interview, they said, we are Christians, we have read the book, we know the ending, and it is good. God is good. And if, you th- if we think about what the book of Philippians is saying to us, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Paul. He's facing death as he's writing this letter, okay? He's in a dungeon, chained there, probably going to die. He doesn't. He ends up getting out and for a couple more years, and then he's actually killed after another imprisonment. But for all he knows, he's facing death, and yet he still fills with joy, which means we can face I, that family. It's the Holcomb family. These guys are showing us the Christian life. It's just like, oh, my goodness, we could, fa- you could face even the worst of conceivable tragedies and still say, "There's God is good in there." And by the way, this is not to say if you're going through some really hard stuff, some really unhealthy stuff, or you know some people who are. It's not just to fake it till you make it, put strap, you know, slap a smile on your face. No, if you need help, seek help and all that sort of thing. But, th- what, but what Paul is saying is, in everything, there's room to see. That we, we don't, we don't just. Not grumble. We, there's joy there. There's 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 love there. But it's, it's got to be cultivated. Um, but we often miss it. And so I just encourage you. And we're gonna we're gonna do our Thanksgiving a uh, friendsgiving uh, event um, in a few weeks. And Thanksgiving is just a wonderful time to kind of think about this. In terms of like, what, what can we be grateful for? What, what are things in life? Man, maybe you're going through something really hard right now, but is there, is there joy there? Is, there? is there love there? Is there good perspective? Is there, is there gratitude to be Paul then goes on to say this, then, you know, if you do this, then you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold out, hold forth the word of life. Uh, a little bit of a, a translation thought um, uh, depending on on, uh, on the on the translation you have, it can say it, it can mean as you you'll shine like stars as you hold firmly as you grasp for, y- for yourself the word of life, but it can equally mean and probably actually almost certainly means as you hold out the life and the reason why there's a consensus on that thought is because it's talking about shining like stars. You, we hold out the word of life. He's saying Christians as you live out your faith as you do. As, as, as you work it out, as you put it to action, as you don't grumble, as you don't argue, as you look to the beautiful things in your life, and you do all these sorts of things, you won't but help but shine like stars. There will be an attraction there. There will be something that is just, like, otherworldly as you hold out the word of life. Now, this is where Paul is driving everything. Um, this is the point of all of it. The Bible is clear, and we actually just sang about this, um, we all need light. We, we need light. Um, some of you guys know this, uh, know this part of my story, but when I was a student in college um, there at Cal, I had a number of people uh, question my faith. They said, well, you just believe because your parents are Christian, or you just believe because you were raised that way. And I used to dismiss that. Early on I dismissed that. I was just like, oh no, not really. No, come on. But after hearing it just a number of times, which Cal will will make you hear that a bunch of times. Um I just was like, you know what? There's there could there could be validity to this. I got I gotta look into it. Like and so I went on a little bit of a spiritual journey of sorts, w- like ask like why do I believe what I believe? What is it that I really believe? And so I had conversations with folks, I read into stuff, I took lots and lots of walks, just kind of pondering things. And yeah uh, and this whole this whole deal, I came to a number of conclusions on which I can't just go into all, all right now. But one of the big conclusions was I just I just firmly believe um, that there's a God. Like that was just one thought. Just the f- you know intellectually speaking, even let alone experientially speaking, that there there has to be a God. S- something from nothing doesn't make sense to me. Um, and, and I just, in, in the randomness factor of life being as precious as it is, the miraculous nature of it, like that was just one point, that, one conclusion that I had. But the other one was this, I felt like I believed alongside just about all other, uh, all uh, philosophies of thought, all religions essentially, that there's something off in the world. There's something just not quite right or how, it was, how it's meant to be. And that it's not only something I see in the news but something that, at the end of the day, it's, it's in here too. And I realized, oh my goodness, it's basically, you know, the, other terms aside, it's what the Bible calls sin. Like, there's a darkness, think about it. Things that I really want to do, man, I can't even mind over matter it sometimes, and I, I don't do those things. And vice versa, the things I know I should be doing, my, I, can't, I, I can't do them. And I, I'd like to think of myself as not like, you know, Marilyn Manson here. You you know what I'm saying? And I just realized there's something something here. I was, and I was I was on a walk one day, and, and, and by the way, I came to the conclusion that all philosophies of thought, all religions are essentially trying to solve for this. And if you want to boil it down into one thought, it's live a better life. Do better. Say your prayers. Whatever that might be. I was on a, a walk one day, and uh, I just it just came to mind, I you know, I read my Bible to that point, so I I knew, you know, the scriptures, and I remember one story, kind of a bizarre story came to mind. Um, It was the story of when Jesus fed the multitude out of just a few loaves, and the crowds, they thought that was a pretty cool deal, so they came back to him a little bit later and said, hey, we'd like some more food, you know, perform another trick, and Jesus said one of the craziest things in the Bible. He said to this crowd of people, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you can have no part of me, which they took literally. They were like, that's cannibalism. That's nuts. That's weird and nasty. We're out of here. Crazier still, though, is Jesus didn't bother to clarify for them. I'm not talking literally, guys. I'm talking spiritually. He didn't do any of that. He let them go. All the crowds, all the people are leaving Jesus and on this moment where everything could fall apart, the whole movement could, could shut down. It's all hanging on a, on a razor blade, knife edge. He turns to the 12 guys that he had been following him for the last two, three years. He says, what about you guys? Are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter said these words, and I was like, that's why I'm a Christian. Peter said, to whom else will we go? You alone have the words of life. There it is again words of life what is the word of life what are the words of life it's jesus himself one of the apostles writing about jesus in another part this is in john one says in him was life in that life was the light of all humankind the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it the light in the life that paul is writing about here is is what christians hold out um when we work out our salvation, when we don't grumble, what we're doing is we're, it's not our life, it's not our light, we're just holding out who Jesus is. And in this posture, we are, we are making him known to those around us. You know, it's amazing to me, you know, these, these very last few verses, Paul kind of talk. he has this, he kind of goes into this talk about offering and sacrifice. He says, you gotta, you know, I'm being poured out like an offering, and on your sacrifice, it's kind of weird, interesting language there, but that's very deliberate because he's talking about Christians as you understand who God is for you, what he's done for you, your life then becomes a sacrifice. Become a living sacrifice because that is what Jesus has done for you. Uh, our light in our life was sacrificed for us. Uh, writing 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah said this, prophesying about the one who would come. He said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Peter uh, wrote this later. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. What is salvation? What is restored relationship with God? It's not anything we can do, but everything in what he has done for us. And receiving that by faith. And what do we as Christians do, therefore, in terms of how do we shine it, how do we make it available, is we just say, here it is. Here at Current, it really pains us to know that there's... There, there's a reality of that this is not, hasn't always been the experience of everyone in this room. Again, not pointing fingers, but a lot of you in this room, I imagine, have had the experience of that's not really the posture that you felt in terms of Christian shining light or whatever it might be. Um, but what Christianity is, essentially, is, is what I quoted a couple weeks ago, essentially one beggar showing another beggar where he found bread. Um, you know, the posture is not, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'd love to tell you about it. The posture is, here he is, I've tasted it, and tasted it, and it is good, and I can't help, I can't keep it to myself. It's living a life sacrificially, choosing humility when our, our, our energy, uh, uh, you know, our, our humanness wants to choose pride. It's living and loving for others. And why is this so attractive? Why is this something we want to do? Uh, well, he ends, ends it this way. He says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Why is this attractive? Why is this something we do? Paul's talking about joy. I was talking to someone this last week, and I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with this. I was talking about with someone this, this uh, uh, a little bit ago, actually two weeks ago, and he was talking about, he's like, you know what? You know what's so cool about the Christian faith? You know what really draws me to it is that, you know, living morally, living for others, you know, it just feels good. It just feels right. It feels, and, and we were talking about that, and it's just like, that's, that's a big part of it. That's good, but that misses it. That's not what it ultimately is about. The reason why we live sacrificially is because, and, and we can find joy in doing that, is, that, is because it's the one we serve the one who has done that for us it is for his good purpose and so we extend his love his light and life to others so if you're here today and you don't know jesus that's what it is it's receiving what god has done for you in jesus he says to all who receive him, to all who, put their, who believe on his name, he gives right to become children of God. And for those of us who have put our faith in him, it is just extending Jesus graciously and in, in great humility saying, here he is, he is good. Right, let's pray.